Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Whether this is your first time tuning in to us or your 87th episode with us, thank you for joining. If this is your first time, welcome to our show where we share Asian American stories from people who look a lot like me and you, uh, but people whose stories are very unique and different in their own way, which makes being Asian American so awesome. Uh, today, my guest is none other than Ryan Alexander Holmes, uh, who has really been sharing his personal story and journey through various social media channels all year um, and sharing his own unique experience of being 100% Black and 100% Chinese growing up in Los Angeles and uh, doing what he does now, which is acting. And so really excited to share this story um, as we begin the last month of 2020 here on December 1st. Um, I want to wish everybody well. And I want to wish everybody health and happiness as we enter the last month of what has been a challenging year, to say the least, for so many of us. Uh, wishing you nothing but happiness, wishing you nothing but health and safety for you and all of your family. So I uh, had a really great time discussing all different things with Ryan on today's show. Hope you enjoy it as much as we had recording it for you. And be sure to check him out on Instagram and be sure to follow us as well at The Asian Americans. Thanks again so much. And here now is my conversation with Ryan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Asian Americans. And whenever you're listening to us and from wherever, as we always do, we wish you health, safety, and happiness. 2020 continues to be a year of surprises, a year of challenge for many of us, um, and, a re and a year really of self-reflection and new learnings, uh, particularly about our identity. Uh, 2020 has been an interesting year, uh, to say the least, for Asian Americans who've been the subject of much racism, much hate crime. Um, and then for some, while they may believe that this is new, uh, so many of us know that it's always been there and it's just happening more often and it's being covered more. Uh, 2020 has also been a year for us to be better allies, better friends, better human beings to understand, to empathize, and to relate to some of our friends from African-American and Black backgrounds who have also, in their own way, and perhaps even more so, um, a challenged life here, here in America that isn't, uh, that never really uh, was their own. And so really excited to share this conversation with my friend Ryan, um, who's lived both of those experiences. He is somebody who considers himself 100% Asian of Chinese descent and 100% Black. And he's been really vocal in a very positive and understanding and uplifting way across all social media platforms on sharing his own unique experiences and perspectives. And to say the least, um, I've learned a lot by following him, and I know so many people out there have as well. And so I am so excited to introduce Ryan Alexander Holmes to you. Hey, Ryan. Wow. Hey, man. That, in that intro, man, was amazing. I <laughs> so much gratitude, almost like kind of teary-eyed right now. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, man. You, I, I, I am grateful to you. Um, you know, I, I think uh, for so, so many Asian Americans of, of East Asian descent in particular, um, this notion of black Asian relations and relationships is something that we were unfortunately um, by our parents who were early immigrants as well, or fresh immigrants, not necessarily taught in the most, you know, productive or, uh, helpful way. And so, you know, even to give you a little context of, you know, how I was raised, like I moved here to Orange County here in, uh, in Southern California 
in January of 1992. Um, obviously, in Korea, there were no black people. And in Fullerton, yep. there may have been two black people. And so <laughs> uh, not a whole lot of, you know, interaction or just engagement um, with people that didn't really look like me. Um, and when you're eight and you move to a new country, you just try to make sense of everything, right? And shortly thereafter, um, yeah. unfortunately, three and a half months later, uh, you know, what Koreans call is Haigu, which means 429. But on April 29th, uh, on the aftermath of the uh, Rodney King indecision, the rights broke out. Mm -hmm. And so what I was, what my, my viewpoint of black and brown people was shaped by the Korean media, by my parents and our immediate community that basically said, those are bad people. Look, they're burning our stores. They're burning our town. Yeah. And so yeah. that's what I was raised with, right? And then so until, it wasn't until I actually, um, you know, moved to New York City a few years later to attend high school um, where I had black and brown friends for the first time. And then so, you know, Ever since then, for the last 20 some odd years, it's been a very, very amazing journey of introspection, learning, and continuing to learn and unlearn at the same time all these preconceptions and notions that uh, so many people have been raised with. And we can go into a lot of these topics today, but you know, there's just so much bias and so much conditioning that both sides are raised with in terms of stereotypes, um, good and bad and preconceived notions, and the media certainly does not do us either side any favors by trying to unite because it's easy to drive a wedge. And so uh, really excited to hear your thoughts, your perspectives, uh, most importantly, learn about your story. Yeah. And then so let's, let, let's roll it back a little bit. You are, as, as you uh, like to proudly say, 100% Asian, 100% black. Tell us a Absolutely. little bit about your, how, how'd your parents meet and how did, how did Ryan come about? <laughs> Man, oh man, dude. Okay, uh, I hope we I hope we get back to everything that you just said because I really want to talk <laughs> about all that. Um, but but um, my parents met. My father's a lawyer uh, in L.A. Uh, he has his own uh, practice. And uh, back before I was born, shortly before I was born, he was doing business um, in China uh, and uh, needed to learn Chinese and wanted to learn Chinese. And my mother was a Chinese news anchor um, for the Chinese news in LA, but she also tutored Chinese. Um, and so my parents met by my mom tutoring my father in Chinese. So like pretty, that's a pretty, 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 you know, pretty, a pretty love story. That's why, that's how I see it. Um, and of course, like going back to what you said about black and Asian relations in America, in the world at large as well, it was really trial by fire, but for my parents, you know, because both sides of the family didn't understand culturally either side, right? But the love between my parents was so strong, of course, that didn't matter. Um, they were going to continue to be with each other regardless of how their other family felt about their relationship. Um, and so when me, well, first of all, when my older brother was born, and then when I was born subsequently, the family started to sort of gravitate more towards this, you know, new nuclear family, this my immediate family, my, me and my brother and my mother and father. And it started to sort of congeal organically into a, a, away from sort of the stereotypes and beliefs and more towards like, okay, these are family. And now they have these two little kids that are like, Blasian, they're black and Asian. 
we gotta we gotta like get rid of these this conditioning um and these stereotypes in our mind and love these children because they're our blood right. you know so that's that's sort of where that's my origin story at least and where for for folks in la i mean if you look at la or southern yeah. california as a whole it's very diverse it's rich um but people who mm-hmm. are from here people who know know that specific cities mm-hmm. and neighborhoods you know resonate or are more friendly to certain types of people and and so <laughs> where, where did you um like yeah if, if i say like fullerton people have you know there's like a lot of Korean people, right? And if I say, yeah. you know, um, you know, so there's a lot of these areas, but um, your, your parents, when they had you and when they decided to start this family together, mm. where, where did they move to? And mm. where do they think that you wow. and your brother would have the best sort of welcoming environment? Because it must Dude, be not easy from question. both sides, right? Yeah. Outside of family, probably there's probably a lot of judgment, yes. a lot of, you know, what yes. are you? And so how, how was like, where did you grow up and how was that in your earlier years? So, uh, you know, when I was super young, we moved around kind of a lot and then, and then settled pretty much, you know, the beginning of my formative years to, to when I left for college. We, we were first in Ladera Heights, which is like, has been deemed the Black Beverly Hills. We were first there until I was about four. And then we moved to Marina Del Rey until um, I was about six. Then and 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 Marina del Rey is like Santa Monica area, you know. That if if I had to say a demographic, it'd be mostly white. Um, but Ladera, obviously, Black Beverly Hills, mostly affluent Black families. Um, so not a lot of diversity, right? In these places, pretty much all Black, and then pretty much all white. And then my family moved to San Marino, which is, I think, at the time it was probably fifty fifty. Uh, mostly Chinese, uh, 50%. And then of, of a, of the Asian 50%, most of it was Chinese. And then, uh, the other 50% was white. So me and my brother were the only black kids in the entire school, pretty much the entire school district. And we're both half black. So together we made one, (laughs) one black person (laughs) and then one Asian person, you know? So we contributed to the 50%, but also gave ourselves like 0.001%, you know? Um, but during that time, and this is, this, these have happened, these conversations, I've had conversations with my parents about this because when you're a kid, you don't think about, you know, the fact that your parents had to think about where you're moving because they're thinking about yeah. you and your education and your, you know, what you're going to learn and the environment that you're going to be raised in. We just like, oh, okay, we move here and move there and then move there. As a kid, that's just how you think. But they were like, listen, we wanted you to have that understanding of who you are, are as an Asian and to be around the Asian community, to be able to go to Asian restaurants, to, to be able to go to uh, Chinese school, which I went to all the time. Um, so that was, that was a very um, calculated step for them to move to that community. Also, that school district is amazing. One of the best, uh, educationally, one of the best school districts in, uh, in definitely in Los Angeles, but uh, in California and the nation. Uh, so that was, that was their thought process behind that. Um, but I, I also want to say that my parents also knew that they were going to have to empower me, empower me 
to be independent in the way that I think about myself and my culture and my heritage because I, me and my brother being Blasian, we were diamond in the rough because there was no one like us. I never met another Blasian until I was in my, you know, mid twenties, you know? Um, and so a lot of our, a lot of their child rearing was, you know, making sure that regardless of what other people were saying about us or looking at us, and they said a lot, you know what I mean? Because when I would go to the Chinese supermarket with my, with my uh, grandma, my Chinese grandma, or with just my mom, they would, they would say racist things to my mom and to my grandma because they didn't know that I was related to them. They didn't know I was their son or their grandson, right? Like, look at, look at those kids. They're going to steal something. Like saying shit like that. And then my, my, um, my uh, grandma would just be like, those are my kids. Those are my grandsons. And you just shut up, you know? Um, but obviously it's such a new experience for my grandma, you know, because she's an immigrant that doesn't speak English, really, you know? So to have these two black kids probably rocked her world in a way that I probably will never understand, right? To, to come from this place where everything's monoracial. And I, I think you understand, like, you were raised in Korea until eight and then came to this melting pot, right? Yeah. And that's wonderful until you start realizing, like, all the nuances and differences and the conditioning and sort of how the media portrays a certain race above another one and, you know, the past history of, of, of how race was created here, you know what I mean? And it hasn't really been solved or been addressed or been acknowledged yet. Yeah. But I hope I answered your question. That was no, no, no. Look, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's something that I often think about and it wasn't actually until, um, so I had our first, we had our son while I was in graduate school and we went to, well, I went to school in Michigan and we didn't really intend to stay there. So, you know, you always, as, as you're graduating yet, yeah, or you, you know, uh, where to work, uh, just as important as, mm. Um, for what company to work for when you graduate are really important things. And um, starting to realize that we, and I say, when I say we, it's basically non white people have this additional mm -hmm. burden of mm -hmm. factoring in diversity and cultural yes. connectedness in deciding what city to go work in. Yeah. You know, it's, it's something that we don't talk about. I don't know if we ever talk about it, but um, you know, when you, when you talk to, your, your white friends or other friends who don't really, who haven't really had this thought or it becomes much more uh, top of mind when you are parents because now you have to think about what kind of kids your friends are going to be friends with. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, hey, let's just go to Dallas because it's great or hey, let's go to Minneapolis because the opportunity is there or like, Cause it's Because hey. it's great. Yeah, it's like, wait. Right. Uh, yeah. Or like, you know, um, a lot of these large CPG companies are in places like, you know, Wisconsin and like middle of uh, Michigan. And, mm -hmm. you know, even, even if those opportunities were great, like, would I really take it just because it's an, it's an additional mm -hmm. burden for my wife and everybody in our family to deal with that. Yeah. Right. And so I hope that, you know, we can get to a place. Um, I don't even want to say post-racial, but we can get to a place where everybody feels a little <laughs> bit more welcome because I don't, I don't think post-racial is, yeah, and mm -hmm. and that that also that that is an aftermath of assimilation, and I don't believe that we sh anybody should assimilate. You should continue to keep mm -hmm. your culture and be very proud of yes. it. Yes, that is that is a very very good distinction because assimilation means that 
assimilation. I talked to my dad about this the other day, and he was like, a lot of black people were against integration, not because they didn't want the equality. It was because it was phrased in a way that made it seem like, look, here's the here's white uh, white society, right? It's better. It's, it's normal. Better, right? So you need to. So yes, it's normal. So the blacks need to assimilate into the greater white society, and it's like. No, we have our own banks. We have our own independence, our own stores. And, and with that integration, you saw the erasure of a lot of Black businesses. Yeah. And so it wasn't really the greatest thing for Black Americans. No. No. I mean, you look at but the Black community. We don't even own our own stores, our own buildings there, you know? Right. And it's, I mean, that, that's a whole different discussion, right? In, in terms of community mm-hmm. ownership and, and, and who's yeah. been allowed to own things and... um you know, does money stay within a community or does it leave? Yeah, yeah. How, yeah. how much inter-community support there is. But, you know, on, on the topic you mentioned earlier about just sort of the perspective of especially Asian folks who generally um, move here, um, you know, from having mm-hmm. spent some time uh, back in Asia, you know, yeah, we can't, that there's a part of me that um, understands completely that it's not so easy for Asian people to come here with an open mind because imagine yeah. growing up in a country where everybody is homogeneous and everything you understand about yes. other people that's not you is something you learn yes. either from friends, family, or media. And then mm-hmm. because, exactly. yeah, and then and then you come to America. And so, you know, we, we just got through the elections, obviously, you know, um, we it on, on the national level, it played out the way that we wanted it to, but you know, those conversations that you're having, difficult conversations that you're having with family, especially the older members, it's hard for them to see it the way we do because it's hard for us to see it the way that they do. It's yeah, really yeah. interesting that, you know, their world is still framed and, you know, seen through the lens of their own experience, right? And so yes. um, it's, it's suffice it to say, it's not easy, it, it's not complex, and I don't even understand half of you know, your experience yeah. is having, because when, when you come home, you're, you're, you feel safe and you're, you know, you don't, you don't have yeah. that. And, um, and like you yeah. said, you didn't get to meet somebody who was half black and half Asian like you until college, which, and then, and, but that's, you know, here, here's the thing yeah. it, it's, and, and to touch on the, the fact that you're talking about, you know, Asians, our fellow Asians coming from a completely homogenous uh, place where they're, they're sort of fed the conditioning that American media gives them, right? It, 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 I think what it comes down to is, is two things, compassion, right, and education. People, people need to be educated in the real truth of history. We don't really get that in America, but we can find it. Like we've found it, you know? And what also needs to happen is we need to have compassion for people who haven't found it, right? Right? Because that's the only because you say that there's a gap between the older generation and the younger generation that applies specifically, you know, when we're talking about it, applies to the Asian community, but that also applies to a lot of other communities, sure. all communities of all colors right. and creeds, right? That there is this sort of gap, and we need to have compassion for people, just like they need to have compassion for us. Yeah. And if we don't have that, there's always going to be that divide, right? Yeah. Because we're always going to see them as like evil racist monsters that don't get it and they just hate us because but they've been taught that right and a lot I of get them it. aren't and, really you know what i mean and then so that i mean you bring up a good point right so when we, when we look at yeah. very very 
conservative or, um, you know, almost extreme right-leaning white folks in this country, and they mm-hmm. don't share the same values on diversity and openness as we do, it's easy for yeah. us to be bad person. Yeah, condemn Shame on you. Mm-hmm. But they grew up in a completely white world. Yes. And, you know, especially when we look at people who, you know, are from certain parts of the country where they haven't really moved around, there's not a lot of migration and there's not a lot of people moving in. Like, while I don't agree, I certainly understand where their fears and their concerns may be coming mm-hmm. from because it's mm-hmm. decades of learning and conditioning. And again, on the topics of assimilation and all these things, like what is quote unquote normal? What is American? And how you define that then, how, you know, it's, it's all like in, in any sciences, right? Like what is the ingoing hypothesis? What are you trying to prove or not? And, and so exactly. it's all perspective of like, what do you consider what it's supposed to be? And then you judge everything else around it. Right. And so I think that's really, um, you know, even knowing that's the solution or like, that's the beginning of how to understand, like it doesn't help. Yeah erase anything or, you know, move, move the needle. No, but it helps, um, it helps us understand the battle we need to fight in the way that we need to fight it. Yeah. Um, right. Cause we understand the source of why they feel that way. Yep. So our tools that we use will be different than like, I'm just going to punch this dude in the face. You know what I mean? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) You know, I, I think it's, 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 I hope by the time, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. Before we die, I hope things are better for um, everybody. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it's it's wild. T- tell me a little bit more about growing up. So your, your parents decide to move to San Marino, which, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. half white, half Asian. Um, not a whole lot of black folks in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, the schools mm-hmm. that you attended, also not a whole lot of, you know, diversity there. How did you see yourself... Mm. obviously both cultures are extremely important to you now as it was then. Yes. Like you almost, did you, I mean, for, 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 for Asian folks, we, we say, you know, did you leave two lives, right? Like, did you, uh, mm. lead a life oh. at school and then come home? Like, was it three for you or uh, was it? Oh man, it like, was like more than three. It was like, there were so many lives. <laughs> so like many when, when you hang out with your living. dad's side of the family, are you a little bit different than when yeah. you hang out with your mom's side of the family? Yeah, it was just like constant code switching. You know what I mean? Um, also, because my interests sort of like, they were so eclectic. Like I loved skateboarding. I loved anime. I loved basketball. I loved football. You know what I mean? <laughs> I loved like a lot of... I love drinking boba. I loved, you know, I love like, I love so many things. And here's the thing. I just love those things. That was just, and of course, like a lot of that is culture because that's who you're raised amongst in your family. But a lot of it was just like, that's just what I liked. But then I would hear uh, people outside of my family having judgments about the things that I liked and being like, why are you skateboarding? That's a white thing. You're not white. You should play basketball and play football. You know what I mean? Soccer, that's not a black thing. And Ryan, why do you sound like that? Why do you talk like that? Because back to the media's portrayal of black people, right? Is that you're a basketball player, football player, or you're a rapper, right? And you wear baggy clothes because that's what black people do. And because they're, the, the media shows such a 
narrow view of what black people are. You had my, you had the non-black kids who surrounded me in my schools telling me how to be black. These, these little kids were telling, telling these non-black <laughs> little kids were telling this little black kid how to be black. Right. Also just completely forgetting that I was Asian. You know what I mean? Sure. But it's, um, and so it makes them feel when, when people don't fit other than the person's stereotypes, you're, you're messing yeah. with their matrix. Right. And it makes yeah. them uncomfortable. It makes them uncomfortable. <laughs> it makes them so uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. And so when they tell you to be, do the Asian thing, do the Korean thing, do the black thing, it's not about you. It's about yes. them. Right. It, it makes them. Yes, exactly. It makes their, right. When you, when you fit their perceptions of stereotype, it makes them at ease about, oh, that's, of course, yeah. of course he eats those things. Right. And, and, and so. And see, yeah. that's unfortunate too, suit too, because like as a kid, you're so you know, your social standing is just so important to you, right? It's like, do I commit social suicide and be like, no, this is who I am. I'm just going to be who the hell I want and like what I want. Or do you sort of like compromise a little because you don't want to be a loner, you know? You don't want to be that like kid who hangs out by himself at recess every day, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, so what what were, how how did that evolve for you? Like, let's talk about just through like high school, right? Like, at what, okay, did you ever okay. get to a point in high school where you're just like, I'm Ryan I, and this is who I am? Or was there always a constant struggle of this carousel of, you know, um, expectations that you oh, were man. trying to live up to? It, it was a constant waxing and waning. Um, there are times when I was like, I'm just going to embrace the black culture because that's what I look like. And everyone thinks that I'm that. And then I parts where I'd be like, no, I'm Asian. I don't care what people think I look like. Yada, yada, yada. Of course, now I'm. I understand I'm both hundred percent and that makes it way clearer for me. But so, so like I said, mostly white and Asian in my community, right? My parents could see that I was going through an extreme identity crisis. <laughs> they could see it. You know, I'd had conversations with my father about it. And I think, and my, of course my father always told me the real history, the real truth that they weren't teaching me in school about black culture and black history. And I get in trouble sometimes at school. And they would, for instance, like I had a teacher who's, it was like, it was March. And you'll understand the significance of the, of the month when I tell the story, but it was March and we were doing reports on historical figures and they asked the class, you know, we went one by one, we had to say it out loud. And I was like, well, Dr. G, I want to, I want to do a historical, my historical speech uh, on Malcolm X. And she like paused the class and said, hold on. In front of the whole class, she's like, Ryan, you already had a whole month, okay? (laughs) February is over. February is over, Ryan. So pick somebody else. And I just remember being like, what? And as the Asian side of me kicked in, also my dad is like, you know, pretty, he's a black militant. He was a black panther. Like, you don't question authority. I was taught not to question authority. So even though I felt that, I was like, that is so wrong what you just said. I didn't question it. I just chose somebody else. I don't know. I don't know who I chose. But it wasn't a black person because that was outlawed, I guess. Um, but they saw they saw that I was having an identity crisis, and they saw that I needed they I needed sort of black influence in my life outside of my father. And so I joined a track club in Pasadena called the Running Roses, the Pasadena Running Roses. That was a black track club in the in North Pasadena, next to John Muir High School. That's where we practice, which was pretty much ninety percent black. And that's where I sort of 
got to understand the black community mm. uh and 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 sort of understand that like oh these people are my people too and i want to fit in with them as well and understand them and hang out with them because that's a part of me right and and so more <laughs> that congealed right so i had now i had uh i was becoming that was the beginning of coming a becoming a world citizen you know what I mean? I had the black influence, the white influence, the Asian influence. Um, and so up until high school, that's when the school that I went to became sort of more of a melting pot. We had Hispanic, we had uh, all, pretty much all, I don't want to say all, but a lot of diversity there, right? Mm. Still mostly white. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Still like 75% white. But that 25%? was the most diversity I've ever had. And I was surrounded by other uh, black kids that were either tokens like me, or they were kids from the inner city. And then Asian kids that were tokens and also from the inner city and also from Asian communities, right? And that's where I learned like, oh, like I'm not alone. Like I have other people who have, they may not be the same mix as me, but they understand like, you know, uh, that, that cultural identity crisis. And we came together and there, you know, there is, there is where I'm sure you understand that there's clicks in high school, right? Oh, yeah. We had this dock, the docks next to our auditorium where like trucks would offload. Um, and that's where the white kids from the West, like Palisades and stuff would sit. And then we had this area called the row, which is where the black kids would sit. And then where I, I would split my time between the row and what we called uh, the world. We called it the world because that's where all like, like the Mexican, the Mexican kids sat, white kids sat, like everyone sat there. There was, it was, not, it the world? It was not like, we called it the world. <laughs> it's like the world, <laughs> you could sit in the world or you could sit in the docks with the white beach kids or you could sit with, um, and, and the world also encompassed like the San Gabriel Valley area. You know what I mean? Everybody like the else. kids from the San Gabriel Valley area, like me, we sat at the world, you know. And give give the um, I, give the audience a little context. I I know what school you went to, but like, yeah, I I went to what, Loyola High School, which is Catholic a private school, school but it's, school. it's got a wide reach, right? It's got a very phys, it's got a yes. very wide physical reach, yes. And a lot of students travel yes. to the central location, yes. And and you test into the school, and a lot of people are from different parts of L.A. County. I, one of my friends was even from Oceanside. I'm just like, what? Really? I, he didn't commute every day, but like that's where his family lived. And I think he lived Whoa. with like, his aunt during the weekday. And then, yeah. Um, wow. But, but yeah, I think Loyola was where I sort of started to become more confident in, in who I was. But once again, it's not, it wasn't complete. There were, still, there were still times when I was the only black kid in the classroom, you know, yeah. surrounded by white kids and maybe one other Asian. And I remember one very, very specific instance where I felt so uncomfortable and alienated. My English teacher walked into the classroom. He was very dramatic. Walked into the classroom and he, he like, the bell rang. He quieted down the students. So we're all just sitting there and he's just standing at his desk, you know, in a pregnant pause. And then he's like, I have something that I need to tell you guys. I'm racist. <laughs> Everyone's just like, what? And he starts to go on and explain that, like, he, start, he talks about, you know, um, subconscious racism, how the system was founded on racism, and how a lot of people 
are racist and have racist ideas and tendencies and don't know it, right? And all the white kids, because a lot of conservative, like Republican, traditionalist kids went to Loyola and they were, they were up in arms arguing. So at the whole class, and I'm just in the back, just like, please don't make me talk. I don't want to talk because <laughs> I feel like y'all are going to gaslight me and make me feel uncomfortable. I'm the only one. And then at the end of the class, the teacher was like, well, you know what? I'm interested in what the only black kid has to say in the, in the classroom. <laughs> and then right when I was about to speak, the bell rang and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> Whew, I don't have to say anything. Cause that's, cause that, cause even him doing that was just, you shouldn't do that to a kid. That's not ready to have the conversation or at least give him a preamble or, or cause it was so it, it, in a lot of those situations. And I feel like, you know, being a minority as well, when you're surrounded by people, I'm going to say when you're surrounded by white people or just people who are not of your culture mm-hmm. and they ask you to talk about your culture, yeah. I'll use white as an example because that's the predominant culture in America. A lot of the times you will be gaslit and they will tell you your experience is not your experience. And just so many years of that, uh, I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to say something and then be like, you're wrong. You're wrong. Your experience is wrong. That's not true. You know what I mean? And I feel like he should have known that. But against again, this is like a decade ago, but still. It's <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's wild because especially when you're the only, the notion that somehow you represent the entire black voice, you know, like, oh, <laughs> You know, it, 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 it's this whole, like, my one friend, yes. you know, thing, right? Yes. Yes. But what's really, I don't know, it's, you know, or I can say that because, you know, I have a black friend and he said, that's okay. Right? Like. Yes. Like, we get that a lot. Like, as if we, <laughs> you know. Hold on. Let me, let me go call my, my best friend who's black. Friend, he represents yeah. the black delegation. It's like, right. no, that's not how that works. Right. Like yeah. I, like I speak for all 4 billion Asians, right? Like, yeah, we, we, what? we don't. And then that's where I think storytelling through like this and other conversations is so important because it brings home the fact that it doesn't exist. Right. It, like we often say in our community, like we're not a monolith. Well, no shit. Right. Like there's many cultures, many languages, many religions, many decades, centuries, even, you know, eons of history have led us to who we are. So, like, why is there, you know, I understand for the black community, it's unique because a lot of that was intentionally erased, right? Um, yes. The, yes. You know, through slavery and, and through just evil, evil atrocities, like, it was intentionally erased. And so, mm-hmm. black culture exist because it is the result of that um but for Mm -hmm. folks from you know central and south america from actually from africa who are still immigrating here today and other parts of the world like you don't really speak for everybody because everybody has a different path to where you got to and so Mm -hmm. i I think it's fascinating but it makes it easy um for the other person or the other party to take what you said as the rule of thumb and saying like, well, you know, Alex, you know, Ryan said, uh, um, you know, that's not offensive. 
the black people. So yeah, yeah. For the rest of my life, so I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. I'm gonna say right, it. I'm gonna say it because Ryan said when so. I right. And yeah. then it, it's so deep, especially when it comes to self-deprecating humor, making fun of accents, making fun of things. Mm-hmm. Like when we don't speak up, we actually give everybody else permission to think that it's okay, right? So yes, Oof. you know, I, I yeah, there, there was an Oof. um, like especially when it comes to making fun of accents or making fun of food or like you know, and then as mm-hmm. as as uh, impressionable teenagers and youth, when you don't have as much self-confidence or self-awareness, like the best thing to do is laugh because yeah. it's then you're creating conflict yeah. in a room full of, you know, uh, tough yes. guys. You laugh, you laugh to sort of dispel that sort of, that, that, <laughs> that uncomfortable feeling, but sure. you laugh to, to alleviate that feeling. And they think you're laughing because it's okay. Right. right. Silence. They is think you're laughing right. with them, but they're right. laughing at you. Right. And you're laughing with them, laughing at you. But that's, that's sometimes, but, but it's also a survival tactic, right? Especially for, mm-hmm. it's a defense mechanism and sometimes a survival tactic because many people are not necessarily emotionally equipped to have that conversation. Yeah, You get to a certain point in your life yeah. where you're just like, I don't, especially in professional settings, right? Like if everybody understands this, how, you know, and maybe for, for this incoming generation, I hope it's different, but you know. How many times have we all sat in boardrooms with old white guys who's an executive mm-hmm. who's revered mm-hmm. and either it's a racist or a sexual joke and everybody just yep. laughs it off and then the excuse is, oh, you yeah. know, that's just him. And how do you deal with that? Right. Like what you should do is call them out on the spot or like, you know, but but it's hard even they'll get rid with, of you. They'll get they'll rid of, get rid right, of you. Well, because you're yeah, they'll fire you, they'll find a way to get rid of you. Right. Or make and, and it so, so uncomfortable like, for you in that environment that you leave. Right. And they win. And so mm-hmm. there's yeah, there, there's a lot of different ways, you know. I I, I don't know. There's just so much that I think for, for us to unpack here. But um the, the part mm-hmm. that I want to focus on with you, Ryan, today is sort of going through all of this, right? Your your um your your childhood and your upbringing where there was a mix of emotions and identity and all these things. You also had a career change where you went down a particular path of wanting to get into business <laughs> per se after formal education. Yeah. And then now, yeah. you know, we now know you as an actor. Like when did that change and how did that correlate to your own self-identity discovery and being not only comfortable, but proud to be all of everything that makes you. That, that happened. Um, uh, after I graduated, actually it started since I was a kid, right? I always was very much into art and performing. Uh, my, my parents sent me to Colburn school, which is like this, uh, uh, art school that, uh, that teaches, and they taught me piano, acting, tap dancing. Um, and so I had a lot of that as a kid. And then I got, as I got older, sports took over, right? I got really good at track and got a track scholarship to go to Berkeley and track became mm. a thing. And I wanted to go to the Olympics and that was my goal. Um, but then my sophomore year, I herniated a disc in my spine and had a tear in my hamstring, which took me out for two years. Wow. And so while I was rehabbing and doing all this stuff, I tapped back into these. And meanwhile, I'm studying business. I'm a business major. 
But now with all this other free time that I'm only doing rehab and I'm not going to competitions and track meets, I started to fall back into this expressing myself, you know, in the way that I always loved to, which was, you know, through the performing arts and acting and humor and comedy. And so after I graduated from college with a business degree at Berkeley, I realized that, okay, now it's up to me. I can, the world is my oyster. I can do whatever I want. You know, I got the degree. I did, I, I met the expectations of my parents. You know, I met all the Asian <laughs> expectations. I got good grades, went to a good school, got a great degree in an acceptable major. But now I was like, okay, I've done that, you know? And I, and mind you, I'd worked in finance every summer during, during college and I didn't enjoy it. I never enjoyed it. They couldn't shut me up. I was always talking about, you know, movies and, and stuff like that and popular culture and comedy and stuff, uh, while still doing a pretty good job at, 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 in finance at that job. But then I moved to New York. I moved to New York under the guise, uh, to my parents that I was gonna get a job on Wall Street because I had so many friends that worked on Wall Street from high school and college. Uh, and my brother went to school on the East Coast. So he, I had all his friends too that also worked in New York for like, you know, Georgia Bank and Bank of America, Wells Fargo. Uh, and so I would sit on those trading desks with them. I just, I'd be like, yo, can I come to, I was staying with my friend who I went to high school with who worked for No Mirabank. Uh, I was just sleeping on his couch and I was like going to work. I'd go to his job, then I'd go to his roommate job. <laughs> we worked at, they're all bankers. And I would sit on the trading desk and just watch them do their job. And it just dawned on me that I'm like, I don't want to do this. Like I have no, I have absolutely <laughs> no interest in doing this at all. Um, and so since I was in New York, it was kind of a perfect place as an artist to sort of find, find myself. And so I started taking acting classes. I signed with a modeling agency and started going to commercial auditions and just failing super hard because I had no idea what I was doing. But, but those, those failures taught me, like, even though I'm failing and I'm being embarrassed right now, I still want to do it. I still love this. I still want to keep going. So I knew that it was something that I wanted to do. And then it, another thing dawned on me was like, I'm very scholastic, right? I was raised that way. I went to Chinese school. I went to Chinese after school. I went to Chinese before school. I went to school, I did parent homework, you know, I learned in this scholastic way where like, I'm in an environment where I'm doing that. And so I was like, maybe the, a master's program would be the best thing for me. So I could just focus just on acting for, for several, for a few years, you know? And so I started auditioning for schools. I auditioned for Juilliard and NYU and uh, Yale and USC was out there too and UCLA. And I got into UC USC and so I came back home um, and my parents, you know, were not accepting at first, you know, cause, cause mind you, Jerry, every summer that I worked in finance, I was always like, okay, well for this summer, I actually want to go to this acting studio and take classes. And they'd sort of pause and be like, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to work at this bank. And we're, so whatever, we're going to work through the bank and you're going to make money and you're going to save it and blah, blah, blah. So when I came back and I told them I had gotten to a master's program, they're like, oh, so you're pretty serious about this, huh? And there's this pristine institution, USC wants you and they're gonna give you a master's degree? Wow. So then I started to feel the respect and the support in a whole different way because 
they saw that I was taking it seriously and it wasn't sort of this pipe dream that was just like, you know, I think I want to be an actor. No, I was serious about it. And I was willing to do what it took and work as hard as I could to sort of see the success in that industry. Uh, but that's my journey, man. That's my journey up, up until now. And now I, uh, but there's all, there's a whole nother journey from graduating from an MFA program to now too. That's I well, congrats. I think on thank you <laughs> finding the thing that is you i think um so I, I think from both cultures um the expectation for us to fit into a mold mm -hmm. to either fit into a very uh, restrictive or pre-prescribed box of jobs yes. that satisfies the need <laughs> your, your father being an attorney himself and valuing education, yeah. um, your peers set from Loyola and Cal, like the list goes on, right? Like the entire expectation deck is very, very stacked against you to yes. do something that you're quote unquote either supposed to do or the mm -hmm. thing that other people would kill to do because they don't have such backgrounds or such privilege, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and because especially when the path is through education, both communities would scream and say, why don't you do the thing that your degree allows you to do? And, and yet there's not as much thought about, well, what does the kid want, right? Like, what's I, he good at? I will at? say that. I will say that. What I've learned is that, yes, there was this feeling of ingratitude, like what you said, like, we gave you all this, all this education. We you went to <laughs> private school. You did all this because you were supposed to be the business person in the family. What's wrong with you, Ryan? But what I've learned is like, through my art and, you know, I'm a content creator. I make videos and stuff like that. I make content. That's been so empowering for me because I use all that experience and I show it to the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. I use everything that my parents gave me, all the opportunities. <laughs> all, I'm so grateful for it. And I show it in my stuff in the way that I know, you know, I'm not a businessman. Oh, I am a businessman in a certain sense. And I use those skills, but I use all the things that I've learned still. You know what I mean? In my art form. And I think given what your mother used to do, which is be in front of a camera to create content. Yeah. And from your yeah. father's side, which is to do it with intention and, you know, do it from yes. a very strategic and, you know, intentional perspective. I, I think it's, mm -hmm. you know, the nobody's really surprised what you're doing now, right? Yeah, now, so, yeah. Now, but it's, it's, I mean, we, we know that though. Everybody shits on you when you're on the struggle and when you're on the grind and, mm -hmm. you know, the moment when you make it big, they say weird stuff like, oh, I always believed in you I or like, knew. you know, I get a ticket to the <laughs> I party. I saw it in and, your but that's, eyes from the moment yeah, that's, you're that's, born. That's, yeah. that's life though, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, let, let, let's talk about this year. So even in the short time that we've known each other and I followed you on social, I can see an evolution of confidence and finding your voice and partly wow. combined with your growing desire to shut out any other voice and just find mm -hmm. the pure confidence and belief in what you believe to be true. I've seen it, and I think other people have seen it as well. You've played a critical role in, in my opinion, uh, to a, a very decent chunk of uh, the Asian American population in sharing what it meant to be black in this country, what it meant to be mm -hmm. 
both black and Asian in this country, especially as we were dealing with the aftermath of George Floyd during the summer and a lot of the um, unfortunately renewed cries for justice for a lot of the things that were happening in this country, um, coupled with, you know, the anti-Asian racism that we still continue to feel the after effects of. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about what 2020 has felt like for you and the things that you've learned in this journey. 2020, man, quarantine, COVID's bad, (laughs) but quarantine has sort of been good for me in the sense that I really have to dive deeply into my own self and understand myself by myself, you know, because I live on my own. Uh, I have limited my interactions with my family, you know, to sort of be safe from a health standpoint. Uh, But in the beginning of quarantine, I didn't have social media. I was sort of on the tail end of a year-long cleanse from social media, Mm. which, which honestly I believe is responsible, uh, not wholly responsible, but, but, um, for me being able to make the content that I'm making now. Right. Because during that year, I stopped looking constantly and obsessing over other people's lives, you know, and trying to sort of become that thing that wasn't really real. And I didn't even know these people and also looking at myself and comparing my life to theirs and being like, I'm not in, I'm not on a yacht in the French Riviera. I'm a failure. You know what I mean? I don't look like them. And I, you know what I mean? I'm not, I don't have all the things that they have. What's wrong with me? I'm a failure. But as soon as I took that purge and sort of did the things that I like, which was, you know, watch anime or read books or gravitate towards people who had similar experience to me and their writings and their podcasts, you know, I started to find out even more who I was. And it's so interesting when you think of how social media can be such a great force for good, but can also turn you against yourself, you know? And when I came back to social media, I was like, I, I was armed with this understanding of knowing who I was, but also what I wanted my message to be, which was to embrace yourself, to love yourself, um, whoever you are. And to not compare yourself and think that you're lesser because someone told you that you were, or even you told yourself that you were, right? Because there's so many things to be grateful for. There's so much culture that you are a part of. No matter what color you are, you know, your experience is your experience and embrace that and find the humor in it. Find the sadness. If you want to talk about the melancholia that you felt, talk about that, but do it in an empowering way, right? So I'm not on Instagram sort of scrolling through, you know, beautiful women or dudes with six packs hoping that I can be like that. And that's fine if you, if you do that, but just understand to not fall victim to comparing yourself and putting yourself down because you're seeing all these, you're bombarded with this, this uh, oversaturation of images. Um, But now that I've, and I appreciate you so much for saying that you've seen even a, even in these past probably like several months, a, a, uh, evolution of my content, because I do feel that sort of every day, because the more that I talk about this and embrace it and show it to the world, the more I'm put into contact with people like you and, uh, who also embrace who they are and are, are getting the truth out there and, and making people understand like, 
there is this idea that a greater culture or American media wants to show that minorities are, but that's not the truth. You need to hear it from the horse's mouth. You need to hear it on, uh, on, on this podcast. You need to hear it from Ryan's Instagram channel. You know what I mean? From directly from the horse's mouth, directly from these people of color's mouths. And I think that's the most inspiring thing to me is to be in contact with these other people that I never knew existed. Yeah. Uh, talking about these things and also coming together, right? You know, like me and me being black and Asian and you being, me being black, black and Chinese American and you being Korean American. These conversations need to happen because we find the similarities and we realize that all these things that we thought made us different actually bind us together because now we know the truth. And the truth is in the empathy and compassion, which is rooted in the humanity of people, right? Mm. And, and we can forget that because we see, we see these images that, of people we don't know and also people talking about other people, groups of people, when they don't even know people, those people. I think social media I I is your question. No, dude, this is, there, there's no, right, there's no right answer. Right. And I think in, yeah. in the spirit of you having found your authentic voice this summer and continuing to go down this path where, um, you know, uh, with, with crass, I say, we don't give a shit what other people think, but in reality, it's, we are so confident in the way that we view ourselves and the way we self-identify. And so that in the same way that it doesn't really matter what anybody says, because what we believe is what we believe. Right. And I think, mm -hmm. I, I hope that more people get to that point because mm -hmm. regardless of your background, your opinion matters and social media for, for all of its negative uh, consequences or, you know, um, the, the downsides of it, it is the, it has been uh, in 2020 and will continue to be, the great equalizer in making strangers across the world feel connected and most importantly, less alone because mm. there are, I mean, tell me, tell me about some of the people that have reached out to you. Like, are there, you know, that there must be folks who've never really felt seen, right? Half black, half Asian, whatever yeah. their identity may be. Yeah. You yeah. have, and not intentionally because this was about you, but you've given those, some of those folks a voice to say like, be proud. I'm a hard, because here's the yeah. thing. We were also conditioned to think of biracial folks as half this and half that as if mm -hmm. we have to make a hundred percent. Right. And mm -hmm. you say a hundred, hundred, I have another friend who is yeah. Korean and her daughter is half black or I'm sorry, hundred percent black, half hundred percent Korean. That's the way she describes it. And I think it's beautiful because yeah. You can be both and there's, there, there's no need to think about identity from a scarcity perspective that we have to fit. There's a cap. There's a, there's a you know, yeah. you can overflow, yeah. right? So tell me about some of the, the conversations that you've had with people responding yeah. to your stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's interesting, right? Because for me, I'm just like, I just want to share this with the world. I'm black and Chinese and I'm just like, there's not really that many black Chinese people out there, but like, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> and what I've seen is a lot of people who are just mixed, just period, not black and Chinese or black and Asian, but mixed yeah. period are just like, Hey man, I'm, I'm from like Peru and I'm half Peruvian, half Chinese or half Peruvian and half black. Like, and I've never had anyone talk about these things that you're talking about right now. And I've never thought that 
there was anyone else out there that was thinking these thoughts, you know? And I, you know, like a lot of people, just kids too, you know? And I'm, and that's what I'm doing it for, really. You know, I think in the beginning when I started wanting to, to be an actor, fame was like one of the driving factors, <laughs> you know, just for, just for the sake of it, you know? But now I'm like, I don't really care about the fame in, a, in of so much as it helps me spread the message of self-empowerment and self-love. So yeah, I, w- I, would want to, I would want that only for that purpose. Not because I want to be looked at as important or, you know, have people hold the door open for me when I go to a restaurant. Like, I don't care about that. What I care about is being a voice for people who don't feel like they do have a voice and giving them that voice so they can do what, what I'm doing and what you're doing. It's like, oh my God, I didn't understand how powerful I was. And now I do. And I want to share that with the world, you know, and, and, and you- find my community. And and the community you found, and I, I think your um, two particular platforms that you spend a lot of time creating content on are Instagram and TikTok, which are places where young yeah. people are. And as we've spent yeah. a lot of time during this conversation talking about, when you're in high school, when you're even younger than that, it's a crappy time because there's not yeah. a lot of positive role models that tell you that it's okay. Simply just mm-hmm. to tell you that it's okay to be who you are and to have those thoughts and to mm-hmm. look like the way you do and to understand where you're yeah. coming from of, I mean, Asian folks are, you know, we, we think it's hard enough, you know, with the cultural expectations that we are raised with. And now you have two sets of those and you have two sets of, you know, things that you think you have to live up to. And, you know, people discriminate on you for both reasons where they're telling you that, you know, you're not, you know, you could probably just pass for black, but then maybe you go there and you say, wait a minute, you know, you don't like, and then you, you know what I mean? Like, you, like you said, yeah. <laughs> in, in the story of, of going to the Chinese market when you're a kid, like it's yeah. hard. Right. And, and so there are countless. And, and as we move into a more of a society where there are going to be more um, interracial marriages mm-hmm. and, you know, biracial children that are mm-hmm. going to have to grow up, not just in this country, but in the world, I think it's really cool. Yeah. Um, and that through yeah. uh, innovative content and, and just using a lot of humor as you do, um, and, and your dad makes a cameo in a lot of these funny videos, <laughs> that, that you found a, a chord that, you, you know, you've struck a chord with, uh, I think, a lot of great people. Um, yes, primarily it's for you, right? You create content for an audience of one. Two, there's a lot of young kids who are in the shoes and in the situations that you are in. But also for those of us on, on either community, on the Asian or the black side, or even just anything else, it really gives us a chance to understand and to learn with you and through you on the unique experiences of being a biracial person that we will never, ever, ever understand because it is not our lived in experience. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just, we can't, and we can't, you know, we don't, we don't choose the way we are born. So like, I think it's really cool that you really, particularly when the media has put us against each other for so long continues to do so yeah. even yeah. just in the in the most recent election here in california prop 16 was about affirmative action and higher education that was marketed as a race issue yeah you know back in new york Gosh. like there's just yeah. so many different things that are there and yeah. fully to realize that um 
nothing we fight for or against is for the detriment of anybody else. What we should actually be fighting for is not just equality, but equity and justice for everybody across the board so that hopefully every person has a fair chance at attaining the same things in life, not just financially, but emotionally and mentally, which right now not everybody has access to. Um, the feeling of uh, feeling safe at any time of day in any part of the world, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's not a feeling that everybody is entitled to today. Um, and, and we hope to get to a point where it is. Um, and so, yeah, I was so excited to engage with you. Um, it was just really refreshing to see the things that you shared and just overall, dude, like Thank you. so, so, so proud of the work that you've done because you could have easily chosen not to, right? You could have easily said like, yeah, man, that's a, that's a easily. tough, sticky, <laughs> sticky, shitty situation. Yeah, they're not going to like wanna... it or they're going to condemn right. me. I don't want to do this. I don't want to put right. myself out there. Right. Yeah. But, but I think what you've done was, more than, yeah. yeah, go ahead. It was scary. It was, it was literally scary. Sometimes I would post things and I'd be like, oh, people are going to not like this or they're going to shit on this and they're going to make me feel so bad. And do I want to go through those emotions again? I already went through them as a kid being gaslit all the time. And then when I stopped caring is when I finally got access to the community that I felt yeah. didn't exist my whole life. Um, I, I, uh, one thing I wanted to say is that social media has sort of made me understand what I just said is that there's this whole community out here and it's con connected me to the Asian community in a way that I never thought I was connected to. Because like I huh. said, my Asian experience was so insular to my family and extended Asian family yeah. that like now that I see all these memes, these beautiful memes and these videos and this, these content, this content everywhere about like the Asian community and sort of our nuances and peculiarities and the humor, I'm just like, oh my God. I am so connected to this, but I never had that connection through sort of like the people when I was growing up. Because to me, I, I didn't think those things were Asian. I was just like, this is just how my family operates, yeah. you know? So I'm, I'm happy that now I get to experience that in a way that I never have or could have. Again, I, I don't speak for the entire Asian, Asian American community, but I <laughs> do think that we, we, need to do a much better job of redefining what it means to be Asian. Mm -hmm. We have a very narrow view. Um, how many, I, I get pissed even when like, you know, even on Instagram or Facebook, um, all these quote unquote Asian accounts show up, but it's a bunch of Chinese and Korean people as if like two countries make up <laughs> yeah, the just, whole continent. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then they just sort of, you know, easily exclude the Southeast and the South Asian folks. Yeah. There's also a lot of bias towards, or, you know, not bias, but just lack of understanding of how biracial kids are raised in this country. There's a lot of lack of understanding on how adoptees are raised in this country. You know, we, I we would had, also, I would, yeah, I would venture to say that like back to what we were saying before is like, they weren't then like those, those, Instagram channels or the, that talk about like, you know, Asian stuff, they're championing themselves, right? Cause they are East Asian, but they've, they don't, they haven't interacted with Southeast Asians, you know? I know. So it's not, it's not necessarily, uh, 
purposeful exclusion. It's just sort of like, oh, we're but we're championing ourselves. We didn't even see that they, you know what I mean? And I think what these these very popular channels are starting to experience is like, hey, Indians are Asian. Hey, Vietnamese, Hmong, Thai. I know. Hey, hello. Which I, which I don't mind, but then just right. letting them in slowly. You know? But then just call yourself a Chinese American thing, right? Like, yeah, I know what you mean. You yeah. know, that's all. Like, I if if you if you, I mean, this is the same challenge that I have, and you know, I I've received not very many, but a, a few messages um, over the last eight months I've been doing this, where it's like, yo, like you say you're for Asian American, but what about these people? And mm-hmm. like, you are the first half black, half Asian person I've had on my show, and you're not the only mm-hmm. one, right? So mm-hmm. it's this notion of wanting to be inclusive by the broadest yes. definition, but I also understand the challenges of, yeah. you know, I don't like seek out people that check boxes cause that's stupid, but also <laughs> yeah. I need to find yeah. people who are willing to share their stories in a matter, manner that I think they yes. can, you know, we, we can have a good conversation with. Yes. And, and so, you know, if people aren't ready, that's fine. But, but I hope that as, as folks are listening to this, we have yet again challenged the notion of what it means to be Asian American in this country, mm-hmm. what it means to be a part of our community and the shared experiences that we have. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, because he, he, here's another stereotype that you may have faced that, you know, if your father is black and your mother is Asian, it's like, oh, um, was your father in the military? Because that is usually how, <laughs> right? A lot of yeah, that are, exactly. right? So like, we're challenging all these the notions where it's no. like, no, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a no, but it was a beautiful love story of people just fell in love. Yeah. And like, why can't we normalize that? Why must we continue to put people in mm-hmm. these boxes and these stereotypes yeah. for us to feel better about everything? Because yeah, the world is everything but. Um, and so I, I'm, yeah. I'm so excited uh, to continue our friendship, Ryan, and to see where this goes. Yeah. yeah I, I know so that. So much more to talk about, man. <laughs> we we <Yeah>. do. <laughs> we do. We I don't know. It, it, it's, it's a silver lining to all of it. You know, you're, you're an actor. You, you've been on TV shows. Mm-hmm. 2020 obviously has, has put a pause to all of that. Um, and I dare yeah. to say that I think you've made um, a more significant impact on the community and perhaps even your own self through what you probably thought was going to be a pretty shitty year and not being able to go to studio <laughs> and then record stuff and to audition. Thank you, Thank you so much, man. Yeah. And True. yeah, it, it, you know, um, and, and to see the encouragement that you get publicly from the people who follow you and engage with you, I think is really, really awesome. And, you know, as we come out of this, I I hope that your newfound perspective, identity, confidence, all of that helps to even boost you further um, in your mission of wanting to positively impact young people who see a little bit of Mm -hmm. themselves in you. And and so I want to end the episode in the same way that we do all of ours, which is a love letter or a message of inspiration to the Asian American community. Wow. And whatever, whatever is that, you, it's not a whole lot of pressure. <laughs> I hope not, but just whatever no, is on not, your mind of something that you wanted to say yeah. to the, uh, to the community. Yeah. So I'll, I'll start the letter and you finish it. And so if you can help us finish okay. out the show by completing the letter, dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, I, I love all of you, each and every one of you. Um, and I think that all of us need to understand that these differences that we feel towards other people that are not us are not real. We need to see the humanity and even amongst our own ranks when it comes to colorism, when it comes to 
this conditioning that actually creates racism that maybe we don't even know is there. And then also for the people who don't have that, who have escaped that conditioning, to have compassion for the people that, who haven't so that we can all arrive to a place of understanding and love and understanding in the sense of that we are all humans and we should all love each other. And I am proud to be Asian American and to be a part of this community and to be a part of this podcast. Thanks, man. Really, and, and I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass, like one of the coolest <laughs> people and content creators that I found in 2020. Thank you, thank you. Because it's it's been educational for me too, right? Um, as, as you mentioned, there is just not, there's very few people who are Asian that can really understand and speak authentically about the black experience in America. Mm-hmm. Whether, and then there's, I mean, how many people would really understand that unless you've lived it? And so even if you're married to, even if you're a ch- child of, it's really hard nearly impossible to really understand what that experience is like unless you've lived it. And so to have somebody like you who has that unique combination of experience, um, but yet also the desire and the ability to share these stories in a way that resonates with people, I think it makes a lot of all of us better. It really provides an opportunity for us to see the world in a, in a different way. And so, yeah, I I hope, I, I know your parents are proud of you. I hope they continue to be proud of you in the way that you, um, change the world in your own way. And, you know, when we talk about acting and when we talk about uh, using the platforms of movies and TV shows to change the narrative and to make a difference in the world, I think the future of content is micro content. I think the future of content is mm-hmm. doing it on your own terms, on your own channels, where you don't have to seek mm-hmm. the permission or the approval of somebody yeah. else, generally old white guys sitting in studios. And two, <laughs> To say, I'm me, I'm going <laughs> to tell my story, and this is it. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so I'm, I'm excited for what's to come, man. Come back on the show anytime. Would love yeah, to have you. This so been, down. And, and we didn't talk and, about half the things that I led the show with, so you'll have to come back <laughs> and we'll have to. But, but also, I just want to say I appreciate you so much and your perspective and understanding of the nuances when it comes to culture, and specifically between the black experience and the Asian experience, because you facilitated this conversation in a way that made it very, very comfortable for me to talk openly. So I just want to say, I love that. And I appreciate that about you for real. Thanks, man. Be well, be safe. Mm-hmm. Every, every sign right now points to us going into some sort of more stringent <laughs> lockdown here for the next few weeks. So more um, content's coming. Yeah. Stay the hell home people. Mm-hmm. Thanksgiving can wait. Christmas can wait. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for, for for Ryan and I to record the next version of this in person and live, we just need you guys to stay home for a little bit longer. Yes. And to uh, fight those urges. So thank you. I will put all the places where people can find you on the internet in the show mm-hmm. notes. And, and so please give him a follow. And, and more than more than just following as, as a fellow person who creates stuff, we don't do it for the engagement, but the engagement really fuels us and encourages us and really tells us if what we're saying and what we're creating is resonating with the community out there. So even if it's just, you know, swipe up fire emojis on a store, like do something, let them know that you're watching and listening because it, it takes a lot of guts and it has taken a lot of guts and, you know, uh, just really guts to share his story and put it out there. So appreciate you, Ryan, and look forward to speaking with you again. Thank soon. you. Thank you so much.
I think we could have talked for hours and hours and hours. Um, thanks again to Ryan for opening up and being really vulnerable and sharing his unique story with us. And I think it's a story that we don't get to hear often. And so I'm, I'm really glad that we had an opportunity to share um, his unique experience that many of us um, who are Asian American really fail to understand. It's just not our lived in experience. And so um, thanks again to Ryan. If this show resonated with you, if you want to share out Ryan's story with other folks, uh, please do so. Um, and, and tag us where you can. We are at Dear Asian Americans on Instagram, and you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn the same way. And on Twitter, we are just at Dear Asian Am. So I encourage you to follow us and like us wherever you can. And most importantly, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment and jump on over to the ratings page. Give us a rating. Please leave us a review. It is really uh, the best way that we can help get our stories noticed. Uh, by the Apple algorithm to make sure that more people can have a chance to discover the same stories like Ryan that you just listened to. Um, as we enter or as we go through the last month of 2020, again, please be safe, uh, please be healthy, and um, hope you take some time to reflect on what this year has meant for us. As challenging as it may have been for all of us, um, let's not let it go to waste and let's really reflect on what we can do uh, to make the best of 2020 and, and to really apply the lessons that we've learned going forward into the next year. I'll see you back here on Tuesday to share our next great Asian American story. And as always, I am so grateful that you've decided to join us today. And so signing off on Dear Asian Americans, this has been your host, Jerry Wan, and I'll see you next time.